This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbia. A toxic ideology of extreme competition and individualism dominates our world. It misrepresents human nature, destroying hope and common purpose. Only a positive vision can replace it. A new story that re-engages people in politics and lights a path to a better future. George Monbia shows how new findings in psychology, neuroscience, and evolutionary biology cast human nature in a radically different light as supremely altruistic and cooperative. He shows how we can build on these findings to create a new politics of belonging. Both democracy and economic life can be radically reorganized from the bottom up, enabling us to take back control and overthrow the forces that have thwarted our ambitions for a better society. Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbia. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Embarrassed members of the conservative intelligentsia have long been dismayed by Donald Trump. He's crude, he's violent, he's garish, has little interest in any contest of ideas, and failed to sufficiently court the hawkish foreign policy establishment. Liberals often feel the same way. But as my guest Corey Robin, a professor of political science at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center, argues, many things that so many on the right and the left see as aberrant about Trump, in fact, are deeply rooted in the right's oftentimes contradictory frameworks. Frameworks that date back to the movement's dawn. The bugs, you see, were meant to be features. It's just that today... Even as conservatives dominate all three branches of the federal government, those features no longer work. Robin is a prolific essayist and incisive blogger, and he just published a new edition of his book, The Reactionary Mind. In many ways, it's more a new book than a new edition, swapping out old chapters on foreign policy and war for new chapters on economics and business. In the book, Robin points to a central tension that he argues has defined conservatism from the get-go between two conceptions of virtue and nobility, one defined by political and military distinction, and another by entrepreneurial acumen and accumulated wealth. Robin parses how Trump fits into this dynamic history in part by taking a look back to seminal conservative thinkers like Edmund Burke and Frederick Hayek. I spoke to him two weeks ago, about an hour after my laptop suddenly died, which I'm only telling you because I make a joke about it that might not otherwise make any sense. Well, there's a lot here, so we'll get to it. But first, if you have not donated already, we're a little bit behind track on fundraising this month. Our goal is 100 new supporters in October. As of Tuesday, we have only hit about 60. So, 40 new supporters in seven days will be tough. But you, our listeners, are our only hope, and you can help make it happen. Go to patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Contribute what you can so that we can keep this thing moving. Okay, thank you, and on to Corey Robin. Corey Robin, welcome back to the dig. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be back. 
I want to focus on the new material in the new edition. And for listeners who haven't heard the first interview, I'll post a link to it in the show notes. And that new material focuses on Edmund Burke and Adam Smith's conception of value and economics, about Nietzsche, about the Austrian School of Economics, and about, of course, Trump. And what you do is you trace an intellectual history of sorts, um, this longstanding tension on the right between aristocratic and entrepreneurial virtues, um, between this conservative pull between conservative conceptions, emphases on politics on the one hand and economics on the other. And so the way I'd like to do this interview is first briefly set up what's going on with Trump in terms of this pull and contradiction between politics and economics, and then dive into some of the history and then pivot back to talk some more about Trump. How's that? That sounds good. So starting with Trump. The core thing you're looking at again here is the way he embodies this longstanding tension on the right between political and economic conceptions of virtue and hierarchy. Explain what you mean by that. So conservatism has a very complicated attitude toward uh, capitalism, and people don't know that. Um, Some people think that conservatism has always been slavishly devoted to the free market, Other people think that conservatism up until very recently was hostile to the free market. Neither view is particularly uh, accurate. Um, But there has been within conservatism a split um, between between many camps. But one of the camps that I really look at more carefully in this second edition of the book, which I hadn't looked at very carefully in the first edition, is between those who, uh, for lack of a better word, prize political life political virtues. This is uh, a a very aristocratic view of politics. It sees the highest fulfillment of human uh, existence to be uh, in service to uh, the polity, to the state. It has overtones with what we call a Republican view of politics in in, in my field of political theory, but it really prizes um, the, the, the aristocracy that serves the state, and it and it finds its you know highest fulfillment in acts of state, oftentimes predominantly war uh, and diplomacy. There is a I'm oh, sorry, that's my cat meowing very loudly. Um, there is uh, another view um, that uh, develops uh, fairly early on, actually, that uh, prizes um, activity in the economy, uh, and it sees. Uh, uh, similar kinds of heroic virtues and leadership virtues, but it thinks that those tend to occur within the economic realm. Uh, and what you, what Donald Trump represents in my reading, and I and I did a really kind of <laughs> close reading of his writings, as it were. Um, he comes from this second camp that that really sees uh, heroism in the economic realm, but. What's interesting about his writing about this and what makes him new to some degree is that though he prizes uh, kind of great men of the economy, and and you see this throughout um, a a lot of his writing on the art of the deal, and and of course that was his selling point as a political leader was, you know, I know how to make money. I've made lots of it. Um, I know how to rise to the top, and therefore that's why you should support me as your political leader. It was all these economic virtues. But at the same time that he pushes that line of argument, uh, if you read not even that carefully and not even that much between the lines, he also has um, questioned the value of the economy. Uh, He can be very corrosive about the value of money, about the value of deals, and about the men who sit at the top of the economy. So he is, he, he's on the one hand very legible uh, as this kind of great man of the economy, and you see this tradition on the right, you know, going back to the 19th century. But on the other hand, he also can be very uh, skeptical of that tradition and is, is constantly exposing it as a fraud uh, and a deception. Uh, and I think that's that really is, you know, at the heart of 
what, what makes Donald Trump new and innovative within within the conservative movement and the Republican Party. Before we do talk about Trump more, I want to rewind a few hundred years um, and talk about Edmund Burke. And at his time, this these sort of competing visions of what conservatism um, was about were embodied by um, the the kind of liberal Whigs on the one hand and the uh, old regime Tories on the other. And you write about Burke and about his concern with reconciling these these two sides and reconciling market and manner, um, capitalism on the one hand and the old regime of aristocracy on the other. And the problem with the and this is all in the with the French Revolution in the backdrop. And the problem with the revolution was that it had not only shaken up hierarchy, you write, but it had shown that hierarchy was not just something that kind of like existed naturally. It showed that it was something that was made, that was contingent rather than sort of divinely ordained. And you write that Burke tried to reconcile this by identifying capitalists as, I guess, the the new old regime reconstituted to fight the French Revolution. Um, explain how how Burke um, dealt with these two sort of elite factions and tried to mold them into one conservative movement that could that could take on the upstart revolutionaries on the left. Yeah, so this is a, a very rich and complicated terrain. Um, before the French Revolution, before, which is really the, the crucible in which conservatism is born as an ideology, throughout the 18th century, there's this struggle, um, which intellectual historians have, have charted for quite some time, between conceptions of what, you know, what we call virtue and commerce. And virtue, as I alluded earlier, was this, was this kind of republican idea, um, often very aristocratic, although it didn't need to be aristocratic, that, as I said, prized um, the, individual, the, the aristocrats' participation in the polity um, and prized a conception of the aristocrat as finding his fulfillment in political action, in service uh, to the polity. And money or commerce was really thought to be oftentimes a kind of corrosive, dangerous value. Uh, and there were all kinds of struggles throughout the 18th century. And Burke himself was involved in some of these pre-revolutionary struggles, uh, particularly over the East India Company. Uh, Burke was a scorching critic of some parts of the East India Company and what they had done in India. And he oftentimes invokes uh, the threat of these new men of money um, as really low men of character who are degrading the political virtues. And there's a whole set of famous speeches that he gives um, throughout beginning in the late 1770s and in the 1780s. It almost became a, a, an obsession. I mean, it was an obsession with him about the, the, the dangers of these men of money uh, and the way they were so corrosive of political virtue and that, and that what they were doing in India, in the, in, in, in the British colony there, uh, was really representative of the threat that money posed to this polity of virtue. The French Revolution happens, um, and one of the things it does, as you said, is it really throws established hierarchies into question. Uh, and it shows that these hierarchies don't exist from time immemorial. They're really created, and they're uncreated. And as the counter-revolutionary argument gets going, and Burke is very much a part of this counter-revolutionary argument, there's a, a notion that they can be, hierarchy can be recreated. So they're not traditional, they're not ancient, they are plastic, they are contingent, they are artificial. And once the revolution happens, um, there is also one of the side effects of the French Revolution is there's a, a, a new round of popular contestation around questions of economics, both in France, but also in Britain. And Burke is at the center of that. There are debates about what we today call living wage. Um, and Burke begins to articulate um, what we think of as a very modern free market idea, um, whereby wages should not be regulated 
or supplemented by the state, but should really be settled completely by the free market. And this is interesting for a couple of reasons, I think. One is there is an awful lot of you know, popular understanding of Burke and scholarship on Burke that says he was always hostile to the free market. He was hostile to money. He was hostile to kind of what we think of as libertarian, you know, today we'd call libertarianism. And that's <laughs> not based on the pa- passages not- you quote. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, you know, that is just simply not the case. Um, you know, Burke really was in the front of a movement uh, on behalf of you know very aggressive free market policies, particularly when it came to labor and wages, um, predominantly agricultural labors. Yeah, it's just remarkable the the passages that you quote in your discussion of them, because I think today people sort of simplistically think back to Adam Smith as being the sort of you know with his invisible hand as being this exponent of the unrestrained free market. But really, it was Burke who sanctified the market and the capitalists who controlled this, you know, in this well before the rise of neoliberalism in a kind of proto-neoliberal way, whereas Adam Smith believed that capital had a responsibility to reproduce labor and was almost like a proto-Fordist. Yeah, I mean, Smith, in in my account, and again, you know, scholars really disagree about this, so this is somewhat contested terrain and it's somewhat controversial, but... I think if you read Smith pretty carefully, um, it's very clear that Smith believes that labor is the foundation of all society, which is not what Burke believes at all. Um, Smith believes that, um, you know, that the, the, the contract between labor and capital is oftentimes distorted by capital, and the reason it's distorted by capital is that capital has capital, first and foremost, so they can always hold out in any kind of a a protracted wage negotiation. And capital has the the side of the law on its hands, and it will always use it. And Smith even says at one point, you know, if if labor could have the side of law on its hands, perhaps, he said, you know, Smith says, you know, regulations of wages are bad, but that's because capital is always, um, you know, in control of, 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 of the law and of the legislature and of parliament. Uh, but if labor were, perhaps there would be a just uh, settlement that would come out of that. So I think Smith is much more um, ambivalent you know, about the power of the market. And it's Burke um, who, uh, uh, in the 1790s, really begins to articulate um, you know, again, this, uh, historians you know, chafe at this kind of language of proto-neoliberal. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's not contextual enough and so forth. But it is a vision that really is quite hostile to the regulation of wages. And, and not only that, and this is where I think it gets super, super interesting, Burke develops a theory of value um, that in its most avant-garde form, in its most far-reaching form, uh, is what we now call the subjective theory of value. That is, um, whereas Smith, you know, really, I mean, I don't think Smith has what we call the labor theory of value uh, as much as people think he has. But, you know, Smith believes that there's something objective in labor and the sacrifices of labor that provide, make it a, a, an adequate measure of value. Burke thinks, you know, value is pretty much whatever the estimation that I put on a good at market, and in particular what he values, what he thinks is important for Burke, uh, is the great, the men of money and the power they have to set value at market. And here's where I think he begins to lay out what makes him a, a, a very modern vision. And that is that the man of the market, not the landed aristocracy, not the inherited aristocracy, who he becomes you know, very critical of toward the end of his life, but the man of money in the market setting the value of things at the market, that this can be a new kind of ruling class uh, and that will arise in this new revolutionary age to contest the Jacobins. Now, as I say in the, in the chapter, he doesn't ultimately go there. He kind of pulls back from this vision for a lot of different reasons. But I do think you see the beginnings of this vision that um, I argue is going to find its fulfillment in, in the 20th century. Uh, and is very modern, um, and is not at all a conventional position, but is very forward-looking. 
Yeah, it, it seems like Burke can't quite bring himself to, even though he ha- like personally really detests a lot of the members of the aristocracy and the kind of inherited wealth um, elite, it would run too contrary to the the very foundation of his politics to throw in his lot entirely with the insurgent capitalists when he's trying to reconcile kind of the two into one elites. But it is it is really remarkable, as you point out, that his conception of value is that that capitalists basically name and create value uh, almost as though as as God through his utterances created the earth. It's this very kind of um, divine power. Absolutely. And, um, you know, my argument is, is that the, his, the vision that he sort of articulates there are the glimmers of the vision, because again, he's always, you know, moving forward and pulling back and moving forward and pulling back from this. Um, but that notion that these men can create value is oddly enough, very indebted to the French revolution itself, because the revolution throws into question all inherited schemes of value, not just moral value, not just political value, but even economic value. Because remember, you know, the, the, the Jacobins and the revolutionaries are screwing around with prices and bread prices all the time. And they're also, you know, changing the value of money. And this is happening in real time. Um, and they're constantly forced to do this because of the, of the hopes of the political reality that they're dealing with. So people, I mean, I have a quote, I think, in the book there, you know, people in Paris remember, wait a minute, you know, six months ago, this money had this value. Now it has this value. So everybody is aware of how variable value is, again, not just in the political world, not just in the moral world, but also in the economic world. And so what comes out of that, I think, is this sense that value is something that is create is, is not objective, but is created by men. Now there's a there's a radical version of this, which you see in someone like Babouf, uh on the radical left. But what's fascinating about Burke is that he imbibes this in a very conservative way and really sees the men of money at the market um, as the creators of value. And we're gonna see you know, beginning in the 19th century, uh, versions of that argument and then fulfilled in the 20th century. Yeah. So if you could trace a little bit of that, because it seems like your argument is that Hayek kind of goes where Burke was heading, but couldn't bring himself to go in terms of really fully embracing the men of money as the new aristocracy. Yeah. So, you know, in the 1870s, there's what economists, historians of, of economic thought called the marginal revolution, um, which is uh, many, many things. But one of them is this, is this notion of the subjective theory of value that I was talking about. That is that there's no objective value to labor, to a commodity, that value does not inhere in the object of anything. That value is something that we as human beings put onto objects, whether those objects are commodities or labor, whatever it may be, that we we ascribe value to those things. Uh, and there had been a big tussle around this in the early 19th century. Marx is obviously very much involved in this. Um, but the, the marginal revolutionaries, uh, they uh, and this is people like Jevons um, in, in Britain, uh, Menger in Austria, uh, and while Ra in uh, France, well, sort of French-speaking Switzerland, they they are they articulate this whole idea, and it and it revolutionizes economics. Um, interestingly enough, and I show there's similarly going on in the moral and the cultural realm with Nietzsche. I won't get into that um, right now. So that's the change that happens in the 1870s, and it it throws open a whole space that people like Hayek step into. And what what, what is important about Hayek? is he picks up on this, um, but what he does is he makes it much more aristocratic. And, he, and he, here, he, I think he really does fulfill the vision that Burke had, because what Hayek argues is that elite men of, men of wealth, men of property, men of money, have the capacity uh, to determine value, not just at the market in an exchange in the way that Burke talked about, and, or, and that sometimes Smith acknowledged was happening. But they do it uh, in a much more long-term sense. That is, they start making, making decisions about taste, um, 
uh, and preferences and desires, uh, and they revolutionize the way people, the things that it is that people want, the people and people want, and it's not just economic commodities. Hayek, in his most far-reaching moment, begins to say they also are able to, these men of money, these, uh, and it's it's always a little bit unclear who he's talking about exactly. But he, he says that these men of, of wealth and, 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 uh, and of money, they're able to um, revolutionize morals as well. So he talks about the way sort of men of great inherited wealth subsidize things like causes like abolition uh, and societies for the cru- uh, prevention of cruelty against animals and, and, and other causes. And through money, um, he believes they really transform, uh, you know, the most far-reaching morals and values we have, uh, and that's because, and this I think is is really sort of the ground zero of the theory. He believes that you cannot have a conception of morals, um, or let me rephrase that. He believes that the most strenuous conception of morals are exhibited by how we spend our money, and this is a kind of a strange argument, I think, particularly for people on the left, because. People, you know, there's a kind of knee-jerk position on the left that says, "Oh, you know, money is is has nothing to do with morality. Um, in fact, money corrupts morals." And what Hayek does, and and he does this also along with this guy named Ludwig von Mises, who's another Austrian economist. What Hayek says is, "Look, uh, talk is cheap, basically. You know, you can say you believe in X and Y, but it's only at the moment of sacrifice." that you know that you truly, truly believe that. And the place where that sacrifice happens, right, the real crucible of where you have to give something up is when you have to give up money for, for, for something. And the more money you're willing to spend, the more it shows you want and believe in that thing. It's kind of like what the way sometimes people talk about the battlefield. You know, that's where, you know, there are no atheists and foxholes. You really prove what you believe <laughs> in the battlefield because you're willing to give up your life. These guys take that model of sacrifice but but locate it and cite it in the economy, in the space of money. And that's I think the kind of big revolution that's at the heart of neoliberalism. It's that uh why do we measure everything according to money? It's because money is really the best measure of what people care about, not just what kind of toothpaste you want, but what, you know, do, do you want to spend money to on healthcare or do you want to spend uh, money on education or do you want to spend money on defense? These decisions, where you spend your money are really, you know, that's where you truly express your deepest, most powerful beliefs. What I don't get about that argument, and maybe it's ungettable, is that the the choice of how one allocates their economic resources only reflects someone's someone's values if there's some constraints on that. And poor people have very different types of restraints on their economic resources than rich people. So how does he account for for those different constraints? Um, uh reflect how how does that add up to some universal theory of the allocation of money representing value i think this is a huge problem actually for them because i think i would even put the the way you framed it even more strongly which is um it seems like there's a real tension there which is that the wealthier you get the less constrained you are therefore the less um uh, let the less your money expresses your values, right? I mean, Hayek actually has in the road to serfdom this notion that, um, you know, you have a pot of money and, you know, uh, I'll spend X for Y and that's at the, you know, at the outer edge is, is the margin. And then the closer and closer you get to the pot of money shrinking, the more and more you're going to express what really, really matters to you. So the implication of that is the poorer you are, the more you're expressing your values. And I do think this is a very hard um, sort of nut to crack. I think the way that he cracks it, and I, I don't think it really answers the point, is to say that these men of great wealth, what they're going to do with their excess, 
precisely because they're not constrained, is to support these great moral principles, these things that don't yet exist. <laughs> Though he also argues that they're like doing this great service, which I I did I was not aware of this argument that he made as sort of uh, product testers for everyone else by oh, buying yeah. expensive luxury products and uh, identifying what's awesome, and uh, then when they decide what's awesome, the manufacturers can make cheaper versions for the rest of us. Exactly. I mean, look, you know, <laughs> you, know you, you probably called me on the cell phone, right? Back in the eighties. Uh, you know, those kinds of phones, not quite cell phones, I can't remember what they were called. That was something rich people had, right? Port- mobile phones, portable phones. They had them in their cars. Uh, and lo and behold, you know, this was something that they liked and they subsidized. And now, you know, every, every Joe and Jane in the street has a cell phone. And, you know, this is so that's, you know, that's very much um, uh, a part of the theory. But it's, again, I think what's, what people often, uh, libertarians love this theory. Uh, because they say this is why you should subsidize, you know, allow people to have rich people to have so much money because they will do exactly that. And the long run, that's better for all of us, because now, look, we all have cell phones. We all have PCs. You know, that used to be a very elite thing. Um, or I guess we don't call them PCs anymore, whatever, you know, just your own computer, <laughs> laptops, you know, you have a lot. Yeah. However, I, I, I did have a laptop. <laughs> <laughs> um Hayek goes much further than that because it's not just about products. It really is, as he puts it, tastes, uh, beliefs, and desires, and moral principles. I mean, he doesn't even think products should be thought of as amoral or anti-moral. He thinks it's all caught up in, in a sort of a moral scheme. But but the point is is that you know how how do we get um, values like uh, feminism and all the rest of it? Well, it's because uh, some very wealthy elite people in the 19th century, like John Stuart Mill's wife, you know, uh, supported these values, and it's you know it's trickle down morality, and they and they put their money behind it. Um, you know, they supported the suffrage for women. You know, that used to be a kind of the, the blue blood cause, and lo and behold, you know, we now have these values that are much more widespread. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listeners' support. So, thank you. And now, back to the show. Tying this into what we were talking about with with Burke in terms of the this tension at the center of conservatism of how to legitimate hierarchy um, whether more in the political realm or through economics, the way that Hayek does this is by basically saying that this 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 kind of strenuous market that forces people to to show what they really value also also shows society who is most valuable and yeah. allows for a new market nobility to emerge. Is that is that a fair reading? Absolutely. I mean, I think Schumpeter in some ways is almost uh, an even stronger version of this and puts it more baldly, right? That uh, Schumpeter has this very political conception of economic dynasties. Um, and I re- if, you, if you know you're in Machiavelli, uh, Schumpeter seems like he's, he's a Machiavellian of the economy um, because Machiavelli was very interested in new princes and old princes and, and, and so forth. And, and that's what Schumpeter is interested in, but in the economy. And he thinks the entrepreneur is this kind of, is like the Machiavellian new prince. He's a breaker of established routines and established regimes. Uh, and he creates what, you know, Machiavelli called new modes and orders. Uh, and so Schumpeter really has this vision of this sort of economic aristocracy, the entrepreneur, who is, you know, the maker and breaker of how we do things and transforms our world. And he says that the entrepreneur, this kind of activity, is the closest thing we have to what it was like to be a medieval lord um, in the modern world. 
So I think, you know, they really both, uh, and, but, but Hayek has this, you know, a version of this, well, uh, of this as well, um, that these are the, you know, the men who kind of, uh, you know, wrestle their way to the top. Um, and um, that notion about value and that they are valuable. I mean, Robert Mercer, who is, you know, this very, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Obscure weird billionaire, <laughs> billionaire, and very weird and very Randian. Uh, Jane Mayer had this brilliant profile of him. Um, you know, he's very tied in with Steve Bannon and 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 behind Trump, and is funding you know these very aggressive right wing causes. And there was a great quote in there where uh, Mayer says, you know, somebody says about this guy Mercer, you know, he really does believe that your value is deter- you know, like your your value as a human being. Not just your economic value, but your value as a human being is determined by your market performance. And school teachers and people like that are simply worth less than, you know, these men of money. Uh, And therefore, you know, and and so they're not just a kind of economic or financial drain. um, They're also a kind of cultural and moral drain. Uh, And I think, you know, and I really try to stress this in the book that what makes these guys political thinkers and not just economists, right? Because people like Hayek and Schumpeter uh, and Mises and so they're often just read as economists, like they're just trying to describe how an economy works, but they're not. I mean, Hayek is very explicit about this. Hayek wants a political theory of the economy. Uh, And and, and what that means is that there's an extraordinarily moralistic conception of what economic life is about. And, and, and I think the punchline there is, you know, if you know your sort of history of ancient, of, of ancient Greece and so forth, you know, it used to be that politics was the place where, you know, great men found their virtue and their mettle um, in, 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 in what they did in the polity. And what, what these guys, you know, these Austrians um, have done and neoliberalism is to say where you find your contribution is really in the economy, in the market. This is um, this is where we make and break uh, empires and dynasties. This is where we find our value. The Austrians, though, are embraced by contemporary libertarians as you know the authors of really the seminal texts of their their movement. But what your analysis makes really clear is that their political economy was just sort of about re relegitimating the um the very same the, the very same sort of hierarchy that had existed before capitalism under capitalism you you note that pinochet pinochet named his 1980 constitution after hayek's book the constitution of liberty and that he'd sent a copy prior to that to the Portuguese dictator Antonio Salazar with a note conveying his hope that the book might, quote, uh, or that might assist him, quote, in his endeavor to design a constitution which is proof against the abuses of democracy. I think what's really useful about this, this one of the many things that's really useful about this chapter is it really shows how libertarian economics really has authoritarianism, political authoritarianism baked into its very core. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting—I mean, I, I think there's two things going on in what you said. Um, the first is about re-legitimating hierarchies for, in a capitalist age. But I, I think the difference where it's not just traditional—and this is true of all conservatism, no matter what its attitude is towards capitalism—is that it has a very dynamic and what we often in political theory call agonistic conception of hierarchy. That is, um, it's not just traditional inherited hierarchy. Um, there's always this notion in all of these writers, including Hayek, who, in, who defended inherited wealth, oddly enough, but there's always this very um, great ambivalence about inherited power and status. Um, you know, Suresh Naidu, the economist at Columbia, was saying the other day that it's almost as if they, they believe in your acquisition at time T when you get it, because that proved that you were worthy. But as soon as that acquisition, you hold on to it for a longer period of time, it becomes an object of suspicion because you, it's almost like you have too much accretions of power and wealth. 
And so they, they, they believe in this very dynamic churning an economy where everybody is always sort of proving their mettle sort of fresh every day. So I, I, don't, I think that we have to be attendant to that because it's a much more, as I say, it's, it's not a static vision. So that's one part of it. But the second part of it, I think, is the part you touched on in the second half of your question, which is there's always this tension about how are we going to create this free market order. And, um, you know, I think people on the left have often noted, you know, that there seems to be this kind of perhaps accidental or contingent state authoritarianism in these libertarian um, projects like Pinochet's Chile and so forth. But what's interesting is if you read the text, they're not just accidental and they're not just contingent. Um, it's, it's baked into the theory. So Hayek has a whole discussion in one of his volumes called Law, Liber uh, Law, Law, Liberty and Legislation or Law, Legislation, Liberty, I can't remember, on sort of emergency moments where uh, a ruler really needs to step in and create a new constitutional order. And what's interesting about the kinds of emergencies that he has in mind they Sounds like Carl Schmidt. Sort of, what's that? <laughs> Sounds like Carl Schmidt. There's a, well, there's a very strong Schmidtian element, and 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 the relationship between Hayek and Schmidt is is quite interesting, and you have to kind of follow footnotes very carefully to see it, uh, <laughs> because uh, you know they really there is a lot of similarity there, and he read Schmidt and appreciated Schmidt, uh, even though he acknowledged that Schmidt was you know the the primary legal theoretician of Nazi Germany. Um, but 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 the Schmidtian dimension there is 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 clear, and and for Hayek, this emergency moment where you need something like a dictator to come in and create this new order is evidenced in part by what we might call social democratic creep. That is a social democracy, um, according to Hayek, slowly undermining the rule of law. So in other words, it's not you know you have this emergency situation where there's anarchy in the streets. Right. Or a foreign invasion where, you know, there's a long tradition of saying that might be a moment where a dictator could happen, you know, could occur. And there's lengthy arguments on that behalf. No, it's social democracy itself could be, according to Hayek, so corrosive of what he views as the real function of the rule of law that you could justify uh, a dictator stepping in. And of course, you know, that's not that far off from what happened in, in Hayek's. Uh, sorry, in uh, Pinochet's uh, in Allende and Pinochet's Chile. Fast forwarding to back to Trump, um, he is this really difficult to process, uh, I guess, recrudescence of this tension between market conservative and politics conservative. On the one hand, as you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, he is as obsessed with money as anyone could imaginably be. And believes um, that money is the measure of valor and value and status. But on the other hand, he also ridicules business as a game. And with people like the now departed Bannon, um, but there's still this kind of vibe to aspects of of Trumpism that I think is important um, that really emphasizes these these, you know, higher virtues of state and nation. So. My question is, does Trump reconcile these tensions or is he an expression of the fact that conservatives are no longer able to reconcile them? I think it's the latter. Um, and, and I think uh, you can both see it in the practice, but you could also see it in the theory. So let's just sort of start at the theory level. Um, you know, reading the art of the deal there is very much, as you say, this sort of the great men of the economy, all that stuff, it's all there. And yet there is this almost poignant repeated set of moments throughout the text where he either blatantly, you know, just comes out and says there's nothing there at all or suggests it. So he talks about, you know, really enjoying coming up against the strongest, toughest guys in the market. But at the same time, he says the problem with rich people is that, that they're not that strong and tough. They're too comfortable. Right? <laughs> it's like he, a Teddy Roosevelt he, critique all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of Teddy Roosevelt, and I want to get to Teddy Roosevelt because he's very important in this in, in a minute. So, so there's that real sense of the weakness of the man of the market and of the man of money. Um, he talks a lot about um, – 
Conrad Hilton. Conrad Hilton is probably, you know, is like one of the most important figures in his uh, sort of imagination. I mean, probably the most important is Roy Cohn, but that's that's a different uh, that's a different issue. Uh, but Conrad Hilton, you know, built this hotel empire, and that, but he has to deal with uh, Hilton's son a lot. And what he says is, you know, this guy is a joker. He has he's Baron the Hilton. <laughs> Yeah, and his name, of course, is Baron, which tells you something strange about how he was on his own kid. So weird. Um, it is very weird. And then he says, you know, right up front, and there's this, you know, it's a famous opening where he talks about, you know, deals are my poetry, they're my art form, and all the rest of it. And everybody always says, ah, you know, the art of the deal, this, you know, this is Trump. But what nobody ever mentions is at the very end of that paragraph, uh, he says, and if you ask me what they added up to, I don't really know. Um, and so, you know, Ronald Reagan would never have said something like that ever. Not no, it, it adds years. up to every, he would have said it adds up to everything. everything. <laughs> you know, I talk about this. I mean, there's this very, uh, not so well known, but was famous at the time moment in 1982. Like this was the height of the worst recession since the depression. Unemployment was something like 10%. It was going nowhere. I mean, it was really 10.8%. I just read it the other day. <laughs> Oh, okay. So 10.8%. It was the, really the nadir of the Reagan administration. And this guy gets on the radio for his weekly you know, radio address. <laughs> and he says, you know, there really is like, you know, um, the magic of the market. Um, and he says, how does the song, he says something like, he quotes from the song, this could be the start of something big. Like, and, and you think this man is insane. But it is the <laughs> conviction, you know of this true believer in the power of markets and what they can do. And Trump has none of that at all. There's just, there's no sense of that at all. The people who are at the top of the market, he thinks maybe are really just not all that. And he says the real way that I, Trump, have um, managed to get where I am is what, you know, I played a fantasy. Most people are little people and they dream of big people like me. And I, and I play to that. And he says, I call it truthful hyperbole. You know, it's just a fancy way of saying I lie. That's at the heart for Trump of what markets are all about. In fact, he says, you know, what's the difference between the New York Stock Exchange and a casino? There is no difference. It's just that the men in the, the stock exchange, they wear suits and they carry a briefcase. And, you know, we're so used to this at, at Trump that we forget what a subversive statement that is. I mean, Keynes has this very famous essay from the 1920s where he says, you know, he's dealing with all the war profiteering that occurred in the late um, 1910s from World War One, And he says, you know, the second it gets out that what profit is, is gambling like this, capitalism is over. It's done because people will not put up with the inequities of capitalism if they believe that it's founded upon gambling. And what I see Trump is saying is, is it is a game. And the reason why he can say it, though, um, is because Keynes was wrong. Um, it doesn't, it does, you know, the response of most people when they find that out is not a revolution. Uh, what we saw in this election, the response was, good, how can I get in on it? You know, give me your secret, Donald Trump. I think that's such an interesting contrast you draw between what Keynes believed would happen and and what Trump proved that he, you know that it was not so. I think it's because that it wasn't Trump who really exposed um that the market was an amoral unmeritocratic game. It seems to me that it was that that's long been clear that the market is a fraud. And painfully so since the financial crisis, and that Trump really comes in when that's already very clear and says, hey, yeah, you know what the market is. I know what the market is. Wink. Um, I am the best at winning this rotten game. And then, and this is like the part that's the most troubling, why does that work? You know, because Trump has enlisted people in identifying with him, maybe? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that's a better way of putting it. I don't think, you know, um, I just, you know, what always strikes me is that we think of Trump as this master liar, and he is, right? He's a total fraud. But there's a central truth that I think he tells, 
and has repeatedly yeah. told um, about capitalism, um, and, and 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 that is what it is. And you know uh, why people voted for him. You know, this is a super complicated question. We haven't talked about race and all kinds of other things. Um, but I think you know there's lots of ways, at least on this economic front, that we might think about it. One is you know let me get in on the game. You know, and people would pay thousands of dollars to go hear this guy. Um, say, you know, just ramble off and say, I mean, before he became president, you know, he would give these, you know, like TED Talks or whatever, the anti-TED Talks. <laughs> um, and, and they paid, you know, a lot of money, you know, because they thought they were going to get in on the secret. So I think that was part of it. But I think also part of it is just sort of basking in the glow. I mean, that's and that's what he has always said is his is his sort of life force and his secret, in, you know, is that people want to bask in his glow. So he projects greatness. Uh, and they go along to it. And, and, and this leads to something sort of else, though, which I think um, – which we haven't talked about. Um, so, you know, you brought up Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, so Teddy Roosevelt – and there's been a stream of aristocratic conservatism that really has been disdainful of the market and disdainful of the man of money and all these ways that sort of Trump actually is. But it always found this answer or counter in the state and particularly in war-making. And Teddy Roosevelt, you know, that was the shtick, right? This is why we have to occupy the Philippines. Why do we have to occupy the Philippines? We have to prove that the rot and the decadence and the corruption that we find because of, ma uh, of money and mammon at home um, will be overcome in the colonies where we will create a new society through the arts of politics, through statecraft, through war through anti-colonial insurgency and counterinsurgency. So this is, this is the dream. And you saw a version of this, I think, in the neoconservatives in the 1990s. They loved Teddy Roosevelt. They loved him. And they also loved Winston Churchill, who had very similar ideas. right? And that was partially the dream that produced Iraq, which turned out to be a fiasco. So now Trump comes along. And I think in part because Iraq was such a fiasco and the neoconservative vision is, is lies in shattered. When Trump tries to kind of beat this hard state drum, this Bannon drum, right, restore America, make America great, the power of the state, if you read him carefully, when he then, you know, the next sentence after that kind of stuff, it's always this very anodyne economic, economistic conception of state power. It's kind of fascinating, actually. So remember, he always used to say, we're going to take their oil, that Iraq. You know, yeah. they, we got shafted, at we, the United States. And we're going to, what are we going to do? Uh, we were going to take the oil back. Well, when then, when, you know, somebody says, well, how are you going to do that? He's like, well, we're going to go to the world court. We're going to go to court. We're going to sue them. Uh, <laughs> China. He says, China is this great military power. So you think, okay, so he's going to do what Teddy Roosevelt did, right? You know, a, a Pacific naval strategy. We're going to build up the East Asian fleet or something like that. No, there's nothing like that. He's like, no, we've got to get them on their copyright and their piracy of our computer language and all this kind of stuff. And again, it's all through, um, you know, we're going to take them to court. It's, you know, this is what a real estate, I mean, it's what Donald Trump has done his entire life. I mean, I think, I can't remember the number of lawsuits that he's been involved in. David K. Johnston, the, the reporter. I th a few thousand, I, I recall you writing. Yeah, it was like uh, 4,000, I think. So this is this man's entire conception of power. Uh, which is very different from a Teddy Roosevelt and from a neoconservative. It's it's the ultimate sort of economistic conception of power, uh, and I think you know this is part of the conundrum that we that he finds they find themselves in. Um, he's exposed the market as a fraud, uh, but he doesn't have any kind of answering political vision, uh, and so we now we get into this sort of funhouse. Uh, we're getting on a year anniversary from this election, um, and you know, outside of the sphere of deregulation, there's very little to show for it. Um, and you're seeing widespread disillusion, even amongst you know, there's just every day the polls are coming in more and more, uh, even among um, the base of the Republican Party. I think a point that you make frequently that I want to underline here is that it's just not Trump not making sense or Trump failing to govern or Trump's incoherence. You argue that he's much more a symptom of more 
profound contradictions in the Republican Party and the conservative movement as a whole, rather than their cause. Exactly. I mean, the way I see this is, you know, Trump has been a total disaster. Um, but he was the best thing that the Republican Party, he was the best option, the best card the Republican Party could play. Because it was precisely the recklessness, the everyday contradictions, the, 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 the nudge and the wink, all the stuff that liberals and the media see as such a scandal. That was the stuff that was um, the source of his you know, power within the base. Someone like Ted Cruz would have gotten creamed. I believe, in the general election. Likewise, Rubio, certainly Jeb Bush. Um, So, you know, this is this guy who really does express, I think, that, you know, the best that they had to offer. And even if you don't believe that that's true, I mean, what I always say is, you know, you can blame Trump for the uh, Obamacare fiasco the first time around in the House. You know, he was all, you know, he really screwed it up for everybody. (laughs) Bit of an underminer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. However, in the end, when it came down to the Senate, that, you know, Mitch McConnell, you can accuse him of many things, but incompetence is not one of them. And he wasn't able to deliver, you know, so there's clearly something going on there that uh, I think rises above, uh, you know, Trump's peculiarity. So, I mean, I, my answer is really twofold. One, all the, the things that make Trump such a problem in office were the exact things that made him so attractive as a candidate to these people the most attractive candidate, you know, Uh, but now they are, uh, but now, you know, in office, they are genuine liabilities Uh, and we're seeing it, you know, and I, and I don't think, you know, the left is really confronted uh, just from a historical point of view, what a disaster. And I don't mean that, you know, he's a cruel person and he does terrible things, which goes without saying, but it really is unprecedented in modern American history uh, to have this kind of a presidency. Um, you know, the inability to kind of move an agenda forward is is stunning. You emphasize Trump's kind of obsession with with aesthetics and obsession with ornament, which seems very fitting for a conservative movement that's had its ideological coherence um, almost entirely hollowed out one of the things that was i thought was most remarkable about the obama the serial failed obamacare repeal attempts was that republicans didn't even like try to pretend that it had anything to do at all with any matter of principle or ideology it just wasn't even they didn't even try to like correct the media's representation of it being something that was purely a desperate effort to do something that was sort of that premise was accepted. This is what's so interesting about someone like Rand Paul. I mean, to some degree, he's kind of a principled conservative <laughs> in that way, and he's considered to be a complete and utter freak show. Uh, but he's just <laughs> articulating, you know, what used to be uh, a kind of, you know, the beating heart of uh, modern American conservatism. Um, and so, you know, I do think that that's, uh, you know, they're really, you know, I'm. I never know how far to push this because, you know, ultimately time is going to tell. But um, I, you know, I thought the Republicans really gave the game up when they said from the very get-go, it's not just a question of uh, repeal, we have to replace. They really conceded the argument that the government has to play a role in, you know, the healthcare market. Um and when they were given the chance to repeal without replace, that was the least popular bill. Now, part of that is just, you know, pragmatics. But, you know, Ronald Reagan could have, and even George W. Bush could have made the case, you know, about the power of markets and believed it. Um, and what you're seeing today is that they have, a, they have a tough, tough time doing that. You know, they have a tough, tough time. Instead, they were left trying to actually get a vote on a bill that basically didn't have content yet, which I think is just a perfect representation of, of where the party is today. Yeah. I mean, there's just no, um, there's, it, it really is a very hollowed out ideological shell. And I think what's tricky for us to analyze is that they still has a tremendous amount of institutional power. 
And I think people on the left looked at that and they said, well, how can you say it's weak? But what people forget, and I think this is so important, is that what conservatism is, and this goes back to now Burke in the beginning, it was supposed to be a process of relegitimation of a hierarchy. It was supposed to be a moral argument for why the distribution of wealth and power was the way it was. The fact that conservatism today is so dependent not on the relegitimation of hierarchy, not on winning arguments in the moral sphere, in the cultural sphere, but upon things like gerrymandering and voter suppression, that is not a sign of conservatism's strength. That is a sign very much of conservatism's weakness. Corey Robin, thank you so much for coming back on. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Corey Robin is a political theorist at Brooklyn College and the author of The Reactionary Mind. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine as Marx once etched into a bathroom stall, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways. Our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a friendly review. I mean, it's up to you, but I hope it's friendly. Also, please let your friends know about the show if you think they'd like it. And last but in no way least, find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution. We really depend on you to keep this thing going. 